I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. This week, we're back speaking with neuroscientist Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath. For part one of this episode, listen to episode 15. And so, to take this back to an advertising or a marketing level, um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, when you teach and you speak, uh, I've noticed you're really skilled at taking something complex and making it simple, but also engaging and making it sticky in our minds. And that's really similar to the job of the marketer. Yeah. So, with the techniques that you've discovered, what can marketers do to better capture attention and make an impact? I mean, earlier you spoke about breaking someone's prediction and then maybe tapping into their recall. Yeah. Is there anything else that maybe marketers could learn from from these ideas? Yeah, I, I think the biggest untapped resource is education in schools. Teachers have been doing the job mm. of marketing for 2,000 years, yet most marketers never think to go say, hey, teachers, how do you get students to do things? And how do you get students to interact with ideas? And so I'm, I'm kind of loving this idea. I live in this crossroads between what I think is the biggest untapped resource and then marketing and media who are always looking for the next big thing. I'm like, it's been next to you the whole time. Your kids are doing it right now. So it, when we talk about engagement at school, there are kind of two. Now, there's a ton of so there's three levels of engagement. You have cognitive engagement. What are you thinking? Behavioral engagement. What are you doing? And emotional engagement. How are you feeling? all with some sort of purpose. I just want to focus on the cognitive engagements because there's two good rules here I think we can steal. Is whatever we're doing, whatever we're selling, whatever we're marketing, we have to meet two criteria. One, people have to be able to cognitively engage with it specifically. So there are some rules of the brain that are hard rules. They do not change. And some marketers just step right on those rules. And they essentially ask human beings to do the impossible. So simple example. Um, Human beings cannot read words while listening to somebody speak at the same time. It's, it's impossible. We have a, have a bottleneck in the brain, which allows us to linguistically only focus on one thing at a time. So example, if you're listening to this podcast right now, pick up a book and try and read the book while listening to and understanding my voice simultaneously, you'll notice all you do is jump back and forth. You get a little bit of one, a little bit of the other, but you can never do both at the same time. Problem. Once you start jumping back and forth, now your memory and understanding tanks significantly. So give me a person and let me just talk to them. They'll learn X amount. Same person gets the same material in text format. They'll learn about the same amount. Third person gets me talking while they're reading the text. Same exact words. Drop of anywhere from 30 to 70% in retention and comprehension. Why? Because we've just asked you to do the impossible. The brain can't handle it. So we've got these specific rules that if you're a marketer, you start thinking about in terms of, okay, in this instance, how am I overlaying text with speech or how am I building those two things together? Am I asking the audience to multitask? What is the context within which they're viewing this article or listening to this podcast? How is that impacting the learning? So you have a bunch of learning principles that are specific. Then you have what we call general. So can I do this specifically? Our brain issues. Can I do this generally? are now issues of development and growth, where we start to see that, okay, in order to influence someone's behavior, they have to go along a trajectory. 
You cannot, so think about us. You all are experts in the field of marketing. If you had a new kid who's never even heard of the word marketing, you cannot start them where you're at now. You necessarily have to backtrack all the way to the beginning and start where they're at to build them up so you can start to have conversations with them like you do your peers right now. It's the same thing with audiences. We tend to, as we're so lost in our job and we're such experts in our own jobs, that we forget that the audience most of the time isn't. So a lot of our messages, a lot of the way we deliver things are perfect for us because we have deep background knowledge. We know we're breaking predictions because such and such in 1960 built this prediction. Ha ha ha. Audience doesn't have any clue to hell you're talking about. And so when you shoot at a level that somebody's not at, it nothing, nothing sticks. It is a waste of everyone's time. It becomes what we call an empty or a dead concept in their brain. It might live there, but it has nothing in it. So it becomes pointless. So can they do it generally? Now we start to reel back and say, okay, if I've got a message, if I've got an idea, where is my audience at? And how do I start with the most simple building blocks so I can build them into this larger message? I don't start with the, we've got to change the world. I start with the, hey, what color are your socks today? Let's start right here with something you understand and then build into this larger. So I think you've got your specific principles of learning and then you've got your general, where is my audience at? and build through those. And you, you start hitting those two things right, and that's what teachers do all day, every day. Congratulations, watch when you can't help but learn things. And uh, what teachers do a lot as well, just as much as marketers, is to use metaphors. And when it comes to future studies, what we say is that people understand through narratives and live by their metaphors. From a neuroscience perspective, how important are metaphors, the, the metaphors we use to express both our inner and outer w words. So you've got two two angles of this. I, I, you can probably guess, ridiculously important. So before metaphor, you have narrative. So if you're learning something new, easiest way to understand it is through a narrative, through a story. Why? Because most stories have a very predictable structure that I already understand. So the new information you're bringing in, I can tack on to my prior knowledge. And it's just like we were talking about building up knowledge as we go along so you so it's almost like the, the the story is the information and the metaphor is the insight is the so what is the meaning of that something like that yes it, it helps me organize the information and tells me where it belongs in my larger narrative of the world it essentially helps me make sense of what the hell is going on now metaphor is a very specific thing so metaphor is a part of narrative but metaphor in particular what we do is so there's when we talk about learning, there's kind of three levels of learning, right? You start at the surface where I just need basic information. Don't give me information. I, there's nothing I can do for you. Deep level learning. So this is level two. This is where metaphor comes on strong. So deep learning is now that you've got all this information, deep learning essentially asks, what the hell are you going to do with it? Like you got all these facts in your brain. Cool. How are you going to link them? How are you going to join them? How are you going to organize them? How are you going to play with them? Deep learning, by and large, is predicated on this idea of metaphors. Metaphors are now, now that I've got a whole new wealth of new information, say through a narrative, what a metaphor does is it says, here's how you can organize it. You already have an understanding of this principle. You already deep, let's say I'm using metaphor of trees in a forest. You already know what trees are. You already know what a forest is. You already have all of these facts linked together. A metaphor says, now take that same exact structure you use there and apply it to these new facts I've brought in. I want you to interpret this new world in that old pattern. And that's what helps us start to organize the new learning and deeply understand it. So again, surface learning is getting the facts. Deep learning is now organizing the facts. And here's where metaphor says we can draw on old patterns of organization 
to help make the new organization quicker and easier and better. Now, this is good because it makes learning easier. But as you can probably guess, this is really dangerous because you can pick any metaphor you want. Love it or hate it. (laughs) There is no one way to understand the world. Facts, and this might be a little too much for the audience, but hopefully this will make sense. Facts by their very nature are binary. They're on, off, they're right, wrong, they're yes, no, they're black, white. When I say, what is the capital of Australia? It literally doesn't matter what you've just said. You were either right or you're wrong. And a hundred years from now, when it's no longer Canberra and it's, I don't know, maybe they make it Brisbane, whatever you said today will still be right or wrong. Facts are binary. Concepts, how we organize those facts, those can never be binary because they're not real. They're not things. They're simply organizing principles. So when I ask you what the capital of Australia is, whatever you say, that's binary, that's a fact. But when I ask you, what is a capital city? What determines a capital city? What dictates a capital city? Now there is no right or wrong answer. There's simply, how are you going to choose to organize all those binary facts you have? Is it the seat of government? Well, shoot, what about Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? Okay, well, maybe it's the biggest city in 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 a state. Well, then what about Sacramento, California? Oh, there. So you see, concepts can't be wrong. They can only be different. And historically, by the way, this is where all debate has taken. Debate has taken place at the conceptual level. We all have the same facts. We're just debating how do you organize and interpret those facts. Interestingly, in the last four years in the US, what you saw, and it was the first time I've ever seen it, was the debate shifted from concepts to the facts themselves, which you cannot debate. They're non-debatable. So when Trump heard something that he didn't like, he would just say, no, I don't. That's not a fact. That's not real. Well, yeah, it is. You can't debate whether or not something is a fact or not. You can debate what it means, how it fits with other facts, but you can't just say it doesn't exist. But that's where the debate went to. So you, you see how useless that is. You can't debate at that level. You can only debate at this metaphorical concepts level. So now we start to see, okay, the concepts we, or excuse me, the metaphors we use will determine the organization good or bad. So how we choose to use metaphors will, and again, there's no right or wrong. There's just what we want to do. will by and large determine how people understand new facts and then act around them, which I think brings us into that big concept then of COVID. So Sergio, this is kind of what we were talking about in the, in the article, right? And I think that's the perfect segue to what Jess is about to ask you. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So that that really ties in well to the the narratives that have been used during COVID and during this time. And so in the article, you touch um, together, you touch on the the narrative of war. And that's something the media has used pretty strategically, I'd say, to galvanise people with lots of different topics throughout time. Um, and it's ha- happened in the media as well, say with, you know, the war on drugs, the war on terror, et cetera. Um, and now with COVID-19, it seems to to have reemerged. And now that we're entering the immunisation chapter of the story, it is still continuing. So why do you think that, that that narrative of war is so powerful and why haven't we been able to change that narrative? It's such a so the perfect example of the war metaphor never needed to be used with COVID. It doesn't need to be used mm. with anything. It's what we choose to use to organize the incoming information we're getting. In this instance, what does the war narrative say? It says there is an enemy. Something is coming to try and take us, our understanding, our way of life. It is wrong. We are right. Luckily, the war narrative also says 
we have the means to overcome it. Human beings have the strength, the intelligence, the understanding to win this war through pooling together and then eradicating this outside thing. So by and large, the war metaphor becomes highly personal, highly individualized. It's you as an individual have the power to beat this thing. And anyone who gets this thing, oh, they lost the war. Sorry, they're they're out or they're sick or they're... Oh my gosh, Queensland has a case? Shut the borders because it's a war narrative. It's us versus them. We cannot let them incur into our state. Oh my God, one person in Western Australia got... That's it, blow up Western Australia. Why? Because this is a war. <laughs> <laughs> Hence all the complete idiocy we've been seeing over the last couple of months here. But why do we use this yeah. narrative? One... It's a metaphor we know everyone will understand. From the time we're kids, the war narrative through cartoons is used across the, the table. So it's a very simple metaphor that we know everyone will understand. There's a problem. We must eradicate it. You are a soldier. It comes down to you and your power. Congratulations. It's also highly mobilizing, especially in male populations. War is sports. War is fighting with your brothers. War is something, this idea of who is stronger who can outlast the other human being is just part and parcel of, of how we were raised. Now, whether or not that's genetic, that's totally the wrong question. It is very much a sociological thing, but that is the so society, the narrative most of us were raised with. So it's well-known, it's highly mobilizing, it gets people going, and it's, it's something you can use that will never stop. Until something else is dead, it, it is continuously useful. Until the last terrorist in the world is dead, you can continue to use the war on terror. Until that last drug is gone, mm -hmm. the narrative is everlasting so long as you need it to be. The problem with it is, is it a useful narrative for what we're going through right now? And historically, what you'll see is in times of crisis like we're having now, the war narrative in the moment is fine. It gets people through whatever the crisis is, but in the long run, it has little to no impact on social change or narrative change. What happens is when you use the, the war narrative, people fight, people hole up, people call each other enemies, people say, oh, you're sick, you're one of the bad guys now. We get through it, we cure it, we kill it, congratulations, and then what do we do? We go right back to our status quo, to our normal. Why? Because mm -hmm. the war narrative says you've always had the power to defeat this in you. And if you had the power before this started and you defeated it, then whatever you were doing before this was fine. You were already good enough. Go back to what you were already doing. And we saw this as soon as lockdown mm -hmm. shut down here and we thought, oh, we're over. Everyone went right back to normal. They said during it, oh, let's drive less. Oh, the environment is so important. As soon as we're out, I'm still stuck in two hours of traffic every day. Why? Because nothing mobilized us for change. It only mobilized us to defeat the enemy. And when the enemy is gone, we go back to normal. So here is something that is happening right now, right now as we speak. There is an intervention that Google has uh, uh, been calling machine learning fairness, where Google's al algorithm is tweaked in favor of certain underrepresented communities as a way to drive the diversity agenda. Yeah. And the whole diversity, inclusion, equality narrative has been possibly one of the most disputed today's and one that has been very problematic for centuries, you know, if not millennia. Uh, 
so for instance and i mean that, that's something that is that is on the article that that we wrote together yeah. when you look for certain terms it's not going to uh, google is not going to respond your search query in a neutral way as you know as it used to be it's going to provide a certain bias uh, and the example that we use is around couples, couples of all sorts. And uh, we, we have the example of white couples, black couples, gay couples. Uh, when you look at gay couples, for instance, all of, all of the images that Google gets back to you with are images of gay couples. When uh, you look at news around gay couples, they are either neutral or positive or, you know, just ephemeral type of commentary. Yeah. The same would repeat with the black couples, where you see images of black couples and uh, uh, the, the, the search bar also preempted with terms that are either neutral or positive. But when it comes to white couples, the images that we see are very few of them showing white couples, let's say, you know, 5%. The remaining showing mixed couples or white couples with uh, black triplets, something that is uh, uh, very hard to understand, right? Yeah. Um, engaging in a, in a practice like that, where you are effectively changing the, the nature of information that is being received uh, is, 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 is it harmful? Is it empowering? And uh, from a learning perspective, what could be the impact of something like this? So you have to think when you're in the conceptual, the deep levels of learning, where you're building your structures around your facts, those structures are going to hinge on the number, the amount, the types of facts that you have. One of the biggest ways to boost learning is to bring in what we call counterfacts. Is so you ha you understand the world in a certain way. You have your facts. You have your concept wrapped around it. Cool. Now you bring in a counterfact. Where so let's go back. The simple example about state capitals. We've got state capital fact. Cool. We've got the concept of capitals. Cool. Now I bring in a counterfact and say, wait a second. What about those countries that have two capitals? How would it be possible that you now have two capitals? in the same exact state. What is going on there? Oh shoot, with this new counterfact, now you have two choices. One, ignore the fact, and that's what a lot of people do, say I don't care, I'm gonna stick with what I got. Or two, start to expand your concept. Your concept in most contexts is right here, but by bringing in counterfacts, you now have the ability to extend, change, move, morph, tweak your concept and live in a broader, bigger world and say, under most contexts, it's this. Under certain circumstances, though, it might be this. This is the importance of a diversity of information. And historically, we've always argued about who's controlling the information. If you're a newspaper guy, you were controlling it. If you're on TV, you're controlling it. If you're on the internet, you're controlling it now. Historically, I don't think that's always been the case. Um, I think there's been a lot of arguments that one person has been controlling the facts but really not until algorithms came in have we really seen that come to the fore. Where now what an algorithm does is it makes guesses, it makes estimates, and that concept of a rabbit hole on the internet is very true. It's it's not an accident. Well, it's not an it is an accident, we think. We don't think anyone wanted to code anything for that. But it becomes a gamified system to the point where, yep, if you're getting information from online, you will be getting it very specifically directed towards you, which means counterfacts are probably never going to show up. You will never hear that there's a place with two capital cities. Why? Because you've only ever looked at regular one capital places. So that's all we're ever going to show you because that must be what you want. Algorithms are very, very tricky and very, very silly. For <laughs> to, I, I, I should raise my hand here and just clarify to anyone listening that I am a card-carrying Luddite. I am not a tech 
guru. I don't like it. I don't like what it's done to us. I don't like the people who, who are running it. I, I think the entire endeavor is just fraught. We were so, I'm going to quote Jeff Goldblum here. We were so concerned with whether or not we could build this thing that we never stopped to say, should we? And the negative impact it has had on learning, on well-being, on health is immeasurable. But okay, who cares? We're stuck with it. Let's let's go over. Let's let the computer because it's smarter than us. Here's what you got to remember. Computers are binary. That's how they work. All algorithms are binary. They can only work on ones and zeros, ons or offs, yeses or nos. Binary, as, as we've learned, is the lowest form of learning. It is surface learning. By all means, binary is essential. But what makes human beings livable, what has always marked us apart from everything else, is our deep levels of learning, is the ability to take binary facts and make an absolute infinite number of conceptual ways to understand and organize those facts. Computers cannot do this form of deep learning. They don't even consider what a concept might be outside of how are other people organizing facts. They're still very binary. So at the end of the day, most algorithms will be stuck at a surface level. It will try its best to eradicate any deep conceptualization and debate there, which is why we got to get off a computer to do it. And any tweak made to an algorithm is done by a human being. Algorithms aren't magic. They didn't just magically appear. The computer doesn't code itself. It has the imprint of the makers on it. So when we started seeing the world algorithms and Google going down one path and we didn't like it, we tweaked the algorithm to fit our narrative to say we want to see more of X, Y, Z. And in so doing though, it goes way off the tracks the other direction and now we're gonna have to recode it ourselves. So to a great degree, everything that you said about the magic and the beauty and the serendipity of emergence and complexity is now being killed by all that because by what you describe, it seems like uh, this practice of uh, machine learning fairness is actually manufacturing emergence. Well, what's, what's good is, yeah, is you can, what I love about emergence is you can't, no one can guide it. That's, that's the joke. You can't predict what's about to happen. That hence emergence. So bring computers and the internet into the mix, that is necessarily going to change the emergent property at the social level. So the emergence that happens above us will be different because we've just introduced a new tool. This happens anytime you bring a new tool. When they invented a hammer, emergence changed. When you brought in fire, emergence changed. Cool. The joke is we had ideas about what we wanted this to change. We thought a computer would lead to better democratization, that would lead to uh, more globalization, a better understanding and a more openness to the world. And of course, it doesn't. So what do we do? We change the algorithms to try and drive this. And what happens? It doesn't. You can't dictate, so by all means, computers are changing the emergent property above us, which is feeding back and changing us. That is a foregone conclusion, that game is over. The joke is, is we're trying to control the emergent property and you can't. It's the same thing as recognizing that nobody told all the diamond sellers in New York to line up on the exact same street. Nobody dictated that. That was an emergent property that occurred simply through interaction between human beings and the environment around them. You can try all you want to build a computer that's going to lead to a certain outcome. It's going to help people learn, make them heroes, make everyone, well, it ain't going to work because you can't control the next level. All we can control is our own thoughts, actions, and behaviors. And now that we've introduced this tool, all we can do is sit back and see what the hell it's going to do to us. 
No, I love the fact you, you said you said all that because that's exactly what we say about futures, that one cannot predict the future. At best, you can try and create it yourself. And speaking of which, when it comes to creating the future and creating the best possible future we can for us and the others, uh, the World Economic Forum has famously published this study about the top 10 skills we need to learn if we are to win in the future. Skills like an analytical thinking, critical thinking, innovation, creativity, creativity with a, a complex problem solving and things like that. I know you are not an advocate, uh, a big advocate of that study, and you have an opposing view to that. But just to close it off this conversation, if, if we were you know, to put our money in a skill that would put us in the best possible place in the future, what is that skill? There is only one skill. If you're going to devote time to a skill, that skill needs to be what's called transferable. It needs to be useful across multiple contexts. And the idea that if you can do it here, you can do it over there. I can do it at work. I can do it at home. I can do it upstairs, downstairs. Cool. All the 21st century skills, the OECD and the ESF and all these, um, what's the other big one? The WEF have thrown out. They're wonderful skills. They're non-transferable. Creativity in art is very different than creativity in medicine is very different than creativity somewhere else. Communication, very different on a podcast than it is in a book, than it is live, than it is on a chat show. These are non-transferable skills. They're contextually bound. The only not completely non-contextual, a-contextual skill that we think we've ever seen that is fully transferable across context is dun -dun -dun -dun, the ability to learn. Now, by this, I don't mean study strategies like flashcards and this and the other. No, I mean the actual learning process. Once you understand the process of surface learning through deep learning, through transfer-based learning, that process is a-contextual, regardless of what you want to do. If you want to go into law, if you want to go into medicine, if you want to go into carpentry, if you want to go into dentistry, the process of learning from surface through deep through transfer is exactly the same. That's the door through which we get into these other fields to then discover what does creativity mean within this field? What is collaboration within this context? So if you were to focus on one thing, the technical term we'd call it is metacognition, is knowing how to learn. Easiest way to understand it is that help people learn how to learn not study strategies, the process. Once you know the process, you can take agency over it. And now when some magical new company pops up and some tool that we never predicted in the past arises, no one predicted the computer, here's a new tool. We're not running to say, oh, what skills do we need to learn how to use this tool? You already got the skill, it's learning. The people who know how to learn will be the fastest to adapt to, interact with, and then build the skills relevant to that new field. So learning, 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 that's the baseline of everything. Learn how you learn and win in the future. That's a, an incredible thought to close off what for me uh, and for Jess, I believe as well, has been one of the most fascinating conversations we had throughout the series. Thank you so much, Jared. It, it's been amazing to have this time with you. No, thank you guys and loved it and happy to answer any more questions if, if, if listeners send them in. Futurecast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, Head of Content Brains and Publisher of Marketing Mag, and Jazz Giuliani, Editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky, with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.